Bill, how about I give, grab this? Yeah, so we're going to be cruising through Genesis 37 to 50. I figured we didn't want to read all those chapters. So that's why we were just uh, found a nice little summary passage in Acts 7, and so that's exciting. Uh, my name is John. Welcome here. If you're tuning in online, glad you're here. So many people are sick, so we're glad that we can be here, and we're glad that uh, those that are not feeling well have chosen to spare us, right, and, and um, look from a distance, so that's awesome. We appreciate that. Well, I'm just going to go through our values because we're taking four weeks in January at the beginning of 2022 and kind of looking at our values. This kind of explains whatever we do from our church. And so just a quick review here. Our values are knowing God and his word, experiencing grace and forgiveness, growing in healthy relationships, and then impacting those near and far. And they all flow together. And those values give birth to rhythms that we want to always gravitate towards, prayer and Bible reading, experiencing community and grace and forgiveness, and then relational skills and equipping, growing in, in relationships, and then serving whoever the Lord puts in, our, in, our, in front of us, next to us, or in our hearts, around the world, whatever that may be. And ultimately, we're making disciples. And here's the deal. Every one of you is already making disciples. A, a disciple means a learner. So we are all making learners of somebody. The, the goal is to make other people learners of Jesus, not learners of consumerism or materialism or revenge or whatever else our culture is pushing us towards. That makes sense? So, so what we try to want to do here is make sure that we're, we're, we're pointing people to Jesus and making disciples of Jesus and not disciples of you know, the Green Bay Packers or something. Anyway, I'm just saying. Nothing wrong with them, right, Bill? <laughs> okay, I'm in trouble now. And today, we're going to be looking at uh, growing and healthy relationships. And so that's uh, where we've been. Um, I, I forgot to move the blue thing there. But uh, we took a look at knowing God and his word, and we discovered that affliction is part of knowing God and his word. That's just the way it works. Uh, last week, we did experiencing grace and forgiveness and looked at David's sin and he said, blessed is the one who finds forgiveness. It's so available and so, so free to us. Why wouldn't we jump on that? And then today we're growing in healthy relationships, Genesis 37 to 50. We're going to zip through the whole thing. But here's the deal. This is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Relational grace versus relational revenge. Big difference, right? So here's a question. How can I grow in healthy relationships when everyone around me they're just difficult. I mean, I, I, I want to grow in, in healthy relationships, but and she and he, they just, it just makes it hard. So that's what we're going to be diving into today, okay? I have an answer for that. So that's, that's where we're going. All right. And so we're taking a look at, uh, at Joseph. Now, who is Joseph? Here is a complicated chart. Joseph is one of 12 brothers. The brothers are in yellow boxes, and they came from four different mothers. One, one guy, Jacob, had four wives. The wives are all in red circles. Uh, Rachel has a double circle because she was favorite. She was favored. Now, you can imagine if, I mean, a, you know, a favorite wife, that, that phrase is problematic on several levels, right? But anyway, she was the favorite, and Joseph, number 11 there. So let's just go through this. Uh, the firstborn is Reuben through Leah, then Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and then Jacob um, 
hangs out with Bilhah and has Dan and Naphtali. And then over here with Zilpah has Gad and Asher. And then back here to Leah, who was unloved. Remember that whole story? Uh, Issachar, Zebulun, and then over here to Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Okay? So that's what's going on there. And uh, Joseph is the favored of all these um, because it's the favored wife. And so that kind of sets the stage for some of the awkward things we're going to see here in the, um, in the text. All right? So I'm just going to start in Genesis 37. I'm going to zip through chapter by chapter all the way to Genesis 50. And so um, we see that jo Joseph is favored because his mother was favored. And um, something I didn't really appreciate about the story of Joseph, because initially I read the story of Joseph, and it, it's easy to come away with the view that the brothers are the bad guys. And he's, poor, poor little Joseph, he's, he's just doing the best he can, and he's just a good, innocent kid. Well, not really. I mean, if you look at this here, he seems to flaunt his favored position. He, he sort of has discovered the power of, of the daddy's favorite. And so whatever trouble he's in, he just throws down that trump card. Daddy's favorite. Daddy's favorite. And, and it even says in, in chapter 37, verse 2, it says he brought a bad report. It means they're morally deficient. It's, it's, it's cutting. It's not just, oh, they... They, they did the, the math wrong on how many sheep they sold. No, they're lying and they're morally deficient. So here's this young guy who has the coat of many colors. The coat was long-sleeved, which means he's doing no labor. You don't do labor in a long-sleeved coat. So he's spared from labor and he's put in a position over all the other brothers, even though he's not the oldest. And he's bossing them around, giving a report back to dad. Yeah, they're morally deficient. And they don't take to that, right? The other brothers, there's already animosity between you know, Rachel and Leah and all these others and vying for who's powerful and who's not. And so he, even though he has, an, has a bit of authority and a bit of, of a tribal rank, he never learns to serve his brothers. Interesting, isn't it? He doesn't use that to serve his brothers. He just tells on his brothers. And then he literally dreams about his brothers serving him. And that's, that's part of the problem here, right? Here's his dream. Hear this dream I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, like grain, stacks of grain. Behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Are you going to reign over us? Do you intend to rule over us? Like, this is preposterous. What, are you, what is this dream? And so you see a little bit of a youthful ignorance, whatever you want to call it. I mean, if he, was, if he had read the book, Winning Friends and Influencing People, he probably wouldn't have just blurted out his dream to his, his brothers, knowing they already hate him. This is not going to help. You see what I'm saying? And, so, um, and then there's another dream. You know, this isn't enough, but there's another dream. And I dreamt that the sun, moon, and stars are bowing down to me. And then his dad says, shut up. His dad rebuked him, which means stop. And, and, and from a couple le levels here, you can see his dad is like, hey, you, you already have issues with the brothers and son. This, this isn't helping. Stop. Interesting, isn't it? He's rebuked. He's favored by dad, hated by his brothers. His dad rebukes him. And so um, it's interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So anyway, it comes about that his brothers are way off by Shechem, tending the flocks, and his dad 
Of course, Joseph is not working. He's, he's wearing his long coat, doing whatever he's doing. And his dad says, hey, go check on him. And uh, it's about 50 miles away. So he, he goes there and they're not there. And I love the text, the way it, it phrases it. It says that he, he, he shows up there and, and, you know, behold, no one's there. And there was a guy who was standing there in the middle of nowhere. And, and he's like, where did they go? And, and the guy knows. He's like, oh, they went to another town 20 miles away called Dothan. So Joseph goes to Dothan to check on the welfare of the brothers who hate him. So here comes this, this young kid with the special robe who does no work, who has all these dreams. And they see him coming, and they decide, let's kill him. Just get rid of this guy. Let's kill him. And so that's, um, that's their plan. However, Reuben intervenes and says, no, let's, he, he, Reuben rescues him. You can remember that RR, Reuben rescues. And so he comes in there and um, says, let's not kill him. Let's just do something else. And so Joseph is now a victim of injustice. And this starts a long, long series of injustice that he experiences. And that forms character in Joseph's heart. We're going to see Joseph is really the one who grows in character more than anybody else here, I think. Um, and so he, he goes from being daddy's favorite to now he's, he's sold. They sell him to some spice traders, Ishmaelites, who are just going from point A to point B. They throw him in a pit and they pull him out and sell him to these spice traders instead of killing him. And I always think, what does Joseph think about the dreams he had now? He's in the pit. His brothers hate him. And he's got this experience, these dreams. And in this culture, dreams were super, super connected to God speaking to you, okay? Like last night, I had a dream that I was a spy. I was going into places I shouldn't be. I had access to stuff, and it was just, and it's just a dream, right? I don't know, maybe because I'm, I'm going to make a point about Joseph being a spy. But, but my point is today, you know, God speaks through his word and his spirit primarily. Dreams he can do that, but I'm just saying in this culture, dreams 100% God is talking to you, okay? That's what I'm saying. Anyway, so um, he has a dream, and um, his brothers sell him to some spice traders, and um, he's walking all the way to Egypt. If you're a slave, you don't ride on an animal, you walk. I've, I've seen pictures of Assyrian slaves. They would dis, uh, dislocate their shoulders and tie their elbows together behind your head. Your, your elbows are touching behind your head, and you're, you're rope, roped up, and then you're walking all the way, and you die. They just cut the rope, and, and oh, that's just that's the way it is. Anyway, so it, he's walking all the way to Egypt behind these spice traders, and the text is very, very significant, and it points out the type of spices, gum, myrrh, and um, that's going to come up later in the story. Anyway, he's going, he goes to Egypt, sold to Potiphar as a, as a slave, working in a Potiphar's house. And the text is interesting here. In chapter 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And, and our first response in our culture, our opulent, rights-oriented culture, well, if the Lord's with them, why are bad things happening? And then that interesting, right? And that's just kind of how we think. We probably don't overtly think that way, but we covertly think that way. It's like, well... I thought the Lord was good. Why am I experiencing trouble? The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. So he's a slave, and he's rising in success. And he's noticed by Mrs. Potiphar, which is a problem because she tries to seduce him, and he says, no, 
not having any of that. In fact, look at his response. His response is amazing. His response is just like David's response about sin. Remember last week? We talked about, about uh, confession, and David said against you and you only, I've sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Here Joseph says, well, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he understands sin is against a holy God, a personal, relational God. It's not just a thing that's wrong. It's not just, well, if I don't get caught, I guess I can do that. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's an interesting view, that he has the same view of sin that David had. But he's, he's um, she screams, and he runs away, apparently leaves his robe behind, and she's like, see, this, this Hebrew, he came in to assault me. And, um, you know, the way the text reads, there's, there's, some, there's some gaps between it. And I think there's room that you can, you can understand that Potiphar's wife is probably always doing this kind of thing, right? And, then, and that's, Potiphar is just like, well, rolling his eyes, okay, now this. Potiphar doesn't kill him. I mean, if, if, if really a slave tried to assault his wife, the guy's dead. And so Joseph already has favor. He's not executed. He's just put in jail. The jail was in the basement of, their, of the master's house. That's how, that's how it worked there. Historically, this is trivia, um, Egypt were the, one of the first nations to have jails way, way sooner than Mesopotamia or Babylon. Anyway, but verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So Joseph is in prison and the Lord's with him. But if the Lord's with him, he won't be in prison. No, the Lord's with him in prison. He's with him as a slave. He's with him in prison. And this is just profound. All the, all the songs we sang this morning, right? In the middle of troubles, you know, the, the, um, the Lord is blessing us in his timeline. Verse chapter 40. Now Pharaoh has a dream. Our Pharaoh's... Um, Servants have a dream. They're in prison with him there, and there's a cup bearer, the king of Egypt, and a baker. They committed offense against Pharaoh. Pharaoh was angry, threw them in jail, and he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So here are these two guys who have offended Pharaoh, and they're thrown in jail. And, and in, in this culture, um, it was the job of certain people to interpret dreams. Now, most of the people that served Pharaoh, they don't know the Lord, and so they're just making stuff up. In fact, later on with Benjamin's silver cup, you know, and he says, I use it for divination. Well, what they would do is put water or wine in it and then dump some oil in it. And they would look at the, you know, how it doesn't mix. They would look at a pattern and they would, they would conclude this, that, and the other thing. And that's, that's just how they did that. Anyway, and so um, they have these dreams. But the point is in prison, there's nobody that can interpret the dreams. And Joseph shows up and he's like, well, dreams and the interpretation of dreams belong to God. Now, I just want to hit pause there and go, well, Joseph, what do you mean? Because you have not had your dreams come to fruition yet. You, you had this dream a long time ago, and, and it's not happening. So where, where do you get the confidence, Joseph, that, that dreams and interpretation of dreams belong to God? I, I don't really have a final answer for that, other than to say it seems that God is giving him the confidence that he's in the middle of a grand plan. And Joseph seems to be content to be in the middle of that grand plan. And that's where I usually kind of panic, right? Because I don't want to be in the middle of the plan. I want to be at the end of the plan, especially if there's any kind of discomfort. All right. So um, I don't know if he understands 
his own dreams at that point. I think it's a little doubtful. It's going to come into crystal clear focus here in a bit, but he's in the middle of things. But he, given his dreams and the culture of how God spoke through dreams, he had to, at every turn, thrown in the pit. He had to be thinking, what about the dreams? Sold to the Ishmaelite traders, walking to Egypt. What does this mean about the dreams? Being sold into Potiphar's house, rising, being thrown in jail. What does this mean? What is, you know, he's, just, he's probably constantly just thinking, Lord, how, how, how is it going to come together? And that is faith on his part. He is constantly believing that somehow his pattern of injustice is going to intersect with God's greater plan. And that just, that, that is faith. And that's, that's encouraging. But he says, and he points out in chapter 40, verse 15, he's bothered by the injustice. It wasn't easy for him. He said, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me in to the pit. And so he's in the jail. He's, he's there and uh, he's forgotten for two years. So he interprets the dreams of the cup bearer, the baker and, and the, uh, the baker and and um, then as they're leaving, he says, hey, tell Pharaoh I'm down here. And, he for, and it, he's, the text says he's forgotten for two years. Yeah, I, I freak out at Menards if there's three people ahead of me. I mean, that's just, that's, that's strug, struggle, right? And then here, two years? You're forgotten? What does that mean about the dreams? What does that mean about the intersection of, of the injustice and, and God's great plan? Two years? Man. But look at the text here in chapter 40. It says in chapter 40, verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. New American says he cared for them. The word is to minister to and to serve. So now this is, this is profound. Joseph, with some authority in prison, has learned to serve those under his authority. He's caring for them. He's serving them. He never did that with his brothers. With his brothers, it was always just tell daddy, do this, do this, you know what I mean? And so he, through the school of hard knocks and through the injustice that he suffered, his character is shifting and he has compassion and he's learning to serve those under his authority. Have you ever noticed people with the most authority talk about it the least? People with the least authority talk about it the most? You know what I mean? It's just interesting, isn't it? And so um, anyway... We'll get to that later too, but um, failed with his brothers. He never really attended to their, their struggles, and certainly as he's talking about the dreams he had and he sees them freak out, that there seems to be no empathy, no compassion, no, um, no soft skills with his brother, right? He, he doesn't have any room for troublemakers early in his life. His brothers are troublemakers. But now in prison... He has compassion for troublemakers. Have you guys ever grown in that area? A little impatient with people until you go through a few things and then all of a sudden you're patient with people? I had surgery, I broke my leg years ago and had the boot, you know, the big boot on all summer. And boy, I tell you, when you wear a boot all summer, anytime I see a boot, to this day, Walmart, wherever I am, I just have the freedom. Oh, what happened? I had a boot once. Tell me your story. And they tell you your story. I mean, it's just a little weird connection because, yeah, I've been there. And, and that gives me compassion on people who have to wear the boot. And whatever else, that applies to a whole bunch of stuff when, um, however that works out. But here, here's an observation. Joseph grew better. He didn't grow bitter. 
right? And through the, the school of hard knocks and through the injustice that he suffered, he grew better, not bitter. And, and he didn't camp out on how dare you and I've got rights and you owe me this. And boy, that is where our culture just pushes us 24-7. We see it. And it's hard not to jump on that bank. He didn't focus on that. He is just simply saying that, I, yeah, I, I'm experiencing injustice, and I believe that this is going to intersect at some point in the future with God's greater plan. I have the dreams. I believe the word that he gave me, and I have faith that this is going to work out. And so he is just continually working that. And so he seems to grow in character through his, the injustice. He, he's, he's viewing people under his charge differently and, and developing compassion. And so as a practical point, even if we neglect and we don't do things right in a relationship, it's never too late to start to do what's right. There's hope. It's never too late to start to do what's right and to enter into that relationship and learn maybe with your authority, whatever position you have, to think in terms of serving, serving them instead of just wielding the power over them. Okay, and then we go to chapter 41, and um, Pharaoh now has a dream. His dream is weird. It's, you know, seven fat cows and then seven skinny cows. The skinny cows eat the, you know, eat the, um, the fat cows, and no one could interpret the dream. And then this guy next to Pharaoh's like, oh, there's this guy in prison. Yeah, I had this dream, and this guy in prison told me the outcome, and it happened. And the other guy, the baker, he told him the dream, and you killed him three days later, and it happened. And so this guy, he might be able to, and so Pharaoh pulls him up, and I always think, what a day that would be. Joseph wakes up in the morning. He's got his to-do list, prisoner A, do this, you know, mop that up, clean that, go get some food, you know, and, and then he's working through his to-do list and all of a sudden these guards come down and they probably have to wash him because he's in prison and then they haul him up to Pharaoh and you know the thoughts and might going to be killed I mean what's going on and, and then he's before Pharaoh and Pharaoh's like hey I've got this dream and Joseph's like well dreams you know belong to God tells him the dream he interprets it that um you know, you're gonna, there's going to be seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine, and, and this is the part I love. Joseph is like, and if you're smart, Pharaoh, God on earth, ruler of everything, if you're smart, Pharaoh, you're going you're gonna to appoint a guy in charge and take one-fifth of the grain for all seven years of produce and have an abundance so that during the seven years of famine, you, you know, your nation won't just up and die. And Pharaoh is already struck out with his wise men. They can't interpret the dream. And so give me a time machine. This is probably number one or number two I want to go to. Just to see Pharaoh look at his advisors. Not you. And then he looks at this prisoner and says, he will be the guy in charge of this whole thing. <laughs> you could just see the jaw drop and all, right? It's like, yeah, an hour ago he's in jail. Well, sure, he's like manager of the jail, but still. Anyway, and so God was with Joseph, and he, he ascends there. And this is an amazing, amazing. There is a movie called Joseph, uh, Ben Kingsley in it. He's the bald guy. Uh, if you're a Marvel fan, he is the, the man, Mandarin, Mandalorian, whatever. It's no Mandarin. Anyway, he, it's an old, old movie, probably 20 years old. It's really, really well done. And um, the scene here where Pharaoh puts Joseph in that honored position, 
And he says, you shall be second only to me. Here's my ring. And he points to this woman and says, she shall be your wife. So in, in one day, he gets out of prison, he gets a job, and he gets a wife. Wow. All of a sudden, now what are the dreams? Now all of a sudden, the dreams are, okay, something's going on here, right? And um, obviously, at this point, probably just, I mean, even metaphorically or, or, or figuratively, he's like, okay, grain. I'm going to be in charge of collecting grain for other people. And so the dreams, yeah, it's not specifically with his brothers yet. And so I often wonder if, if, if God is, is um, bringing Joseph into this position of interpreting dreams as a way of encouraging with his own dreams. It's like, yeah, here's what the cup, the cup bearer's dream meant. Here's what the baker's dream meant. Here's what Pharaoh's dream means. And I know what your dream means. So just keep up the faith as these things eventually will, will coalesce and, and, and join. So it's been 13 years. It's been 13 years. It says Joseph rose to power 30 years old. All right, He was 17 years old when he was thrown in the pit. So for 13 years, he's been up and down on this path of injustice. And 13 years, that's a long time. He grew better. He didn't grow bitter, Right? He understood his own character had to be transformed if he's going to grow in a healthy relationship with his brothers. And that's right around the corner. But he has, he has these, uh, he marries this woman called Asenath. She was the daughter of a priest, and he leads his family according to Yahweh. And I just would love to interview her. What was it like to marry this foreigner who has a foreign god who leads you in the way of the one true god names his one son manasseh meaning my i've i've forgotten the pain of my past and his other son ephraim which means god has made me fruitful just just what a a transformative life and family that she would experience right there's nothing else in scripture about her so when i get to heaven i'll look her up because remember no one else is going to right so anyway um all right so the point here, here, here's the point. Growing in healthy relationships often requires that we grow in our character, and that never happens quickly or conveniently. It's always painful. Growing in healthy relationships usually involves our own character growth, and that's never convenient or quick. Chapter 42. Now, people from all over the world are coming to Joseph to get in grain, and again, a busy day. Joseph, he's got a million to-dos to do. He's in charge of a whole bunch of stuff. Hey, go here, do this, do that, do that. Here's a line of people. More people want grain all over the world. Give them the grain, give them the grain. Bring in the next group. And the, the, his brothers walk in. They don't know. They don't recognize Joseph, right? He recognizes them, and then this is where the fun starts, okay? And if you're thinking, well, how could they not recognize him? It's been 13 years, and he's all garbed up in the Egyptian powerful stuff. You're not, you're not thinking that. Like, when you look at the evening news, you don't see someone at the White House being interviewed and go, I think that's Uncle Tommy. Remember Uncle Tommy? You, you, don't, you don't think that. I remember 13 years ago, he left the family. No, anyway, they don't, they don't know him. And so, um, but he speaks the same language. He understands all their conversations. And um, verse 6, chapter 42, verse 6, listen to this. Joseph's brothers came, bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Okay, now, what does Joseph think about the dreams? 
Oh boy, this is the day. I get it. They are literally bowing down before me. And it's about grain. And so he's going through a whole bunch of stuff in his mind. How does he view the situation? Is this, I mean, he has got power. He could, oh, he could make them suffer. Is he thinking revenge? No, he's not. Is he, is he thinking punishment? No. He has ongoing faith that God is orchestrating his events, the injustice that he has been experiencing according to his dream and the plan to bless other people. And so he's, he has that perspective. Wow, so now he for sure understands that dream, at least the first dream. And here, let, let me just go through this and, and, and paint the picture of how Joseph seems to be thinking. He sees the evil intent of his brothers to throw him in a pit and then sell him to the spice traders who sold him to Potiphar, who, and he was doing a great job in Potiphar's place, but then he got noticed and framed injustly for a crime that he didn't do, and he's forgotten in jail for two years, um, brought up before Pharaoh, elevated to a position to distribute grain, which leads to his brothers bowing down before him, just like God said it would be. Amazing, right? And so, 13 years, you, you, you have to understand that he is going to feel abandoned by God emotionally. He's going to feel betrayed. He's going to feel like, like God has forgotten him. What, 13 years? He was forgotten for two years, but the whole time he understood God is going to be faithful to his word at some point, and he just kept moving forward, avoiding the traps of revenge and bitterness. Could, could, could you? I don't know if I could do that, right? Because I'm part of my culture. How dare you? You, you can't, right? And so we're pretty quick to, to put ourselves up in that position of power and, and freak out about all the injustice that we, that we experience. So, and that's where our culture wants to take us. So he, of all people in Scripture, I mean, I, I could make a pretty good case that, yeah, revenge is a path that, that he could go down, but he doesn't, all right? And so here's, here's what he didn't do. Despair is where we end up when we think we know the end of our story. And this entire time, he, in one sense, he doesn't know the end of his story, but in another sense, he does, right? He understands at some point God is going to be faithful. It's going to, it's going to work out, but he doesn't. The, the path is brutal. And so I love that because despair is when we end up where we think we know the end of a story, but the fact is we don't know the end of our story. And so listen to this. There's hope in the unknown of our story. Sometimes we look at the unknown aspect of our story and we kind of melt down, freak out, and we panic. But it's the very fact that we don't know tomorrow that gives us hope. We don't have to despair, and usually, I mean, I'm an, I'm an optimist, and still, it's easy to go dark about the future. Well, what if this happens? What if this happens? You know what I mean? And, and we just kind of spiral in these negative thoughts, and, um, and it's easy to despair because we think we know the end of our story, but God is a God who um, is bigger than our fears. Cue VeggieTales. Anyway, um, so, so that, and then here, this is... Um, this is a, a question for you. Can you pass the test of revenge? Um, what do you do with the injustice that happens to you? 
And here's a phrase, I'm going to pick this phrase up in a month when we're going to be going through Philippians. What happens to what happens to you? Things happen to us. Injustice happens to us. What happens when that happens to you? What do you do with that? What does that mean? Theologically, what does that mean? Relationally, what does that mean? Huge. So what happens to what happens to you? What, what do we do? Grow better? Better? Gravitate towards relational revenge? Re relational grace? Here's good news from God's Word. Um, uh, one more slide. So, um, yeah, if we're focused on relational revenge, we're, we're focused on the injustice we've suffered. We spend our energy to make others pay for their sin. Versus relational grace, we focus on God's involvement of our story. We're in the middle of it, and, and these two paths probably aren't joining fast enough for us, but then we spend energy to receive grace and forgiveness for our sins and extend that to other people. And that is difficult. But here's the verse. Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Do, do you understand the, the significance of that verse right there, which is in the Old Testament? God is, God, God is gracious. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this is Joseph's story all over it. He is trusting God to bring those two things together in God's time. And so if Joseph had to exercise faith, probably we will, right? I mean, so, so Joseph had to wait to see his brothers grow in character. His family the story of his family reconciliation took a long time, so it probably will take a long time in our experience. See what I'm saying? All right. Um, so he doesn't want revenge. Um, anyway, he's back to his brothers here in chapter 42, verse 7. They're bowing down before him, and, and he, it says, he pretended to be a stranger to them and spoke harshly to them. Well, yeah, he... he he wants to find out some things before he reveals himself. One is, have they experienced any character growth? Are they sorry or what's the deal with? And a Joseph was favored because of Rachel, which also means Benjamin is going to be favored because of Rachel. So he's going to be going down this path here. His goal is not revenge, but reconciled relational, um, relationships with his brothers. So he has to be pretending, and this is what's going on here. Um, Joseph the spy. This is probably why I had my dream of being a spy, right? Now, a spy, a spy by definition, enters a relationship covertly to extract information. That's what spies do. Uh, years ago, we were in Washington, D.C. The kids were little. We went to this place called the International Spy Museum. Just pretty cool. Blows your mind with true spy stories and all the spy tech and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, so the spy enters relationships to get information under uh, without revealing his identity. So, so Joseph accuses the brothers of, hey, you're spies. 
Ironically, no, it's Joseph who's the spy. He's the one that has this fake identity that's, that's saying, well, tell me about your, uh, where you're from and tell me about your family. And blah, they blurt out, well, we've got the dad and we've got this younger brother and we had another brother, but he's no more. And so Joseph now has heard, oh, so dad is alive. And Benjamin is still kicking. His first covert mission is the welfare of the father and his brothers. He finds that out, and so then it shifts to number two. Well, then how do I get them to come to me in Egypt so I can provide for them? He doesn't want to punish them. He's gracious. He wants to provide for them, okay? So the second mission, and he says this then, um, and he's still got his, his angry eyes on, you know what I mean? His, his authoritative eyes on, and he was going to put them all in prison for three days, and he did. On the third day, he says, do this and you will live. I'm in chapter 42, verse 19. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined in custody, and I'll let the rest of you go. Verse 20, bring your youngest brother to me as proof, and you will not die. And then they say, oh, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother we saw the distress of his soul. He begged us and we didn't listen. That's why this is happening. And Joseph hears that, starts to weep. He has to run out of the room sobbing because it's just so much. But he's seeing, he's seeing a crack of character development. Oh, we're guilty. We saw the distress of his soul. What does he do with that? Interesting, isn't it? He hears them explain the whole thing, and Reuben is like, you know, Reuben wasn't even there when they pulled him out of the pit. Reuben was the firstborn. He was the one in charge of everything, and he did not want to kill him because he's accountable for that, all that stuff. So Reuben rescues him, but he wasn't there when Joseph was pulled out of the pit to be sold to the spice traders. And I just wonder, get, get, a, get a, a time machine and a drone. I just, I just want to see when they pulled Joseph out, I bet you, he is looking all over Reuben. Reuben. Reuben will stop this. Reuben won't let this happen. Where's Reuben? He's not there. Sold, hauled off. Reuben comes back. The pit's empty. What did you guys do? So he shifts to Simeon, the secondborn, who should have known better. And so this is who he says, Simeon, you go to jail. The rest of you go back. Get Benjamin. So that's what he does. And... Um, then he goes back, and, um, and he puts the money back in their bags... In verse 28, he says, and they discover the money in their bags, and they say, what has God done to us? Now, this is interesting, because normally, if you open up um, like a briefcase or a box in your closet or your trunk of your car and it's full of cash, you're going to be like, wow. You're not going to be like, what is God doing to me? Unless you have a pile of unconfessed sin. See what I'm saying? Unconfessed sin causes us to misunderstand God's goodness. And so we see that here. They, ju they just can't see straight because of their, their, uh, their unconfessed sin. And think about this. The day that they lied to the father, they, they give the bloody robe, you know, they, they put blood all over it, and they, oh, a wild animal. You know, you know, that happens, Dad. They had to agree year after year after year as they see their follow their father's heart breaking to withhold the truth from him. What does that do to your soul? I mean, you, you have to end up in a pretty harsh, hard place to do that to your father for year after year after year. Man, 
Anyway, so, um, and then Reuben has a brilliant plan. He's like, well, you can kill my two sons if, if, if I don't uh, bring him back to you. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's not helpful. I mean, the whole plan here isn't to kill off the offspring, but anyway, Reuben is like, you know, uh, we're going to do the right thing. So um, Jacob is distraught. They go back, and they explain to Jacob, hey, we've got to bring Benjamin back. And he's like, no way, absolutely not. And they run out of food. And he's like, okay, take some pistachios, and look, look at this. Take some balm, gum, and myrrh. Now, it's not chewing gum, it's spices, okay? But that's the same thing. The Ishmaelite traders, it said they had... Um, Gum, myrrh, and balm. And he's walking behind these camels all the way to Egypt, smelling the gum, the myrrh, and the balm. And now dad is like, hey, bring some good stuff. Bring these spices. Interesting, right? So he, they go back, and, and it, says, it says in verse 25, they prepared the present for Joseph because they're going to have lunch with him. Now, this is the deal. The presents, the, the myrrh, the gum, and the, and, and the spices, they're like, oh, this is good stuff. Joseph smells them. What do you think he's thinking of? Ugh, walking behind the camel, smelling this, thinking I'm going to die. It totally is not helpful. Interesting. So he sold for 20 pieces of silver, the spices. He walks behind them, and... Um, he sets up the, the, the tables in, according to their birth order. How would he know that? And he gives Benjamin five times as much food as everybody else because he wants to look at their eyes. What will favoritism to Benjamin trigger in them, right? Because his favoritism triggered this whole nightmare, you know, 13 years. So are they going to hate Benjamin if he's like, hey, special, more food for you? He's like, and he just wants, he's starting to test him, all right? Look at their attitude. And so that leads to this, the third covert mission, discern his brother's hearts. Have they been growing in character? And so he sends them away, and he puts his silver cup in Benjamin's sack, puts their money back, they go away, and then he tells his guy, hey, go get him and um, get my cup. So he pulls him over, like, woo, 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 flashing, you know, lights on the camels, and pulls him over, hey, somebody stole the master's cup. Big deal. And they're like, are we idiots? No, look through all we have. In fact, if you find it in anybody, you can, you can kill him. And they find it in Benjamin's sack. It's a test. Are they going to cut Benjamin loose as quickly as they cut him loose? And they don't. They just collapse with, oh, we can't do this because our father and the, the youngest child. And they go, they go all through this whole thing. So Judah um, shows compassion. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. And they, they, they go on, and, and, um, and that gets us to chapter 50, and this is where we really see, this is like, if this is a movie, this is the, 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 the heart of the scene. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, may it, be, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Now listen to this. Jacob is dead, the brothers are afraid, and they say, yeah, dad's not around anymore. Mm, Joseph might hate us and pay us back. What has Joseph done to give them any fuel for that fear? Nothing. Well, he's been, he's been a, little, a little, he's playing with them a little bit, but he's still always giving them food and stuff. So anyway, they send a message to Joseph. Uh, your father gave us this command before he died. Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Please forgive the transgressions of the servants. The very next verse, 
Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He can see their heart hasn't really changed. They've grown a little bit. They feel bad about it, but they're still living in fear and manipulation. I mean, Dad probably never said that. They're just trying to cover their bases. You know what I'm saying? And so he says, he weeps. He says, do not fear. He recognizes they're afraid. Do not fear. I, am I in the place of God? This is the key right here. Chapter 50, verse 20. This is the key that unlocks the entire life story of Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Joseph has this trajectory, 13 years, and he's like, you meant this for evil, but God in his goodness had this bigger plan, and I was trusting him the entire way, and sure, you had evil in your hearts, but God is using that, like Romans 8.28. God is using that for a bigger purpose. Now, this really pulls us out of our, of our culture that, that teaches us to pursue comfort as number one. And, and it, it causes us to zoom out and go, God has a, a kingdom plan going on, and you and I are either now or will be in the middle of something like the 13-year trajectory where there's injustice and there's pain and there's betrayal and there's loss. And when that happens, we just need to double down on God's word that he's revealed to us. Jacob forgot the dreams that Joseph shared with him, and he ends up in despair. Joseph remembers God's word to him through dreams, and he has hope, right? So, it is amazing. Um, so, what's your, what's your motive? Relational grace, relational revenge. What's your motive in difficult relationships? Revenge? Right, here, here, let me say it this way. If you have been offended, injured, big or small by someone else, and if you want that person to suffer for their sin, you are the prisoner. That's just how it works. Joseph forgave his brothers, even though they never asked for it. They never confessed how bad their sin was. He forgave them, even though they never apologized. We have the power to forgive people who have hurt us, even though they're not sorry. That's a big deal. Right? Maybe someone has hurt someone you loved, and you're just like, right? And there's real pain there. There's real pain. But, but what happens to what happens to you? Right? Where, where does that put you? What kind of, what kind of place does that put you? Um, Joseph had to exercise a lifetime of faith, and we will too. So here's the final question, well, it's not a question, it's a statement, but growing in healthy relationships begins with God's work in our own lives as we forgive those closest to us, and we see God's hand in the middle of injustices that we suffer. Unusual sermon, right? Because if you're thinking about growing in healthy relationships, you know, I, I have about 20 little tips, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, but this is really the heart here. It, it, Lord, where's my heart in this strained relationship. I want to grow in healthy relationships. And sure, it's a, it's a dance. There's other people, you know what I mean? They bear some weight to grow in character, but we can't flip a switch. Have you ever tried to make somebody grow in character? Eh, it doesn't really work, right? So um, just 
we present ourselves to God, we open up our heart, and we grow. And Joseph developed in character. He, he grows compassion. He grows in wisdom. And there's hope because we don't know where our, our, our future ends. But we have a good God who is faithful to his word, and it will come about no matter how long that trajectory of injustice is in our lives or disappointments. And so I'm encouraged about that. Let's close up. I'll pray here and uh, just think deeply about that, where you're at with that. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are bigger than our problems. Not only that, you use our problems. Many, many times you orchestrate our problems specifically, probably in answer to our prayers, that we're praying that we may know you better, that we may know your word better, that we may grow in character, understand you more So I just pray that in our strained relationships, we would look first to your word, allow you to work in our lives, and we would extend grace and compassion to those around us. Amen.